Well, I want you to know, this year at Christmas, it might happen. This year, it's possible. This year, I want you to be prepared. You might receive a gift that you never use. I know that might be hard to believe. Or, you might be on the other end of things. You might have stood for hours outside in line in, in, in a Best Buy parking lot, gotten frostbite in your left pinky finger, broke the bank to buy what you think is the perfect gift for someone, only months later to discover that it's still in the box, never opened, tucked away and forgotten somewhere. So often gifts go unused, don't they? But like this gift here. It's a gift that's been given to me, and it's a gift that's been given to you. And yet this gift is not like a gimmicky TV paid programming, buy one, get three free, and then grow tomatoes upside down kind of gift. It's an amazing gift. Perfect. It's something that we really need, something that impacts our daily lives. And yet it's not boring, like getting a pair of socks as a kid. It's exciting, and it was very, very pricey. It's hard to believe how much it costs. And yet costly as it is, it's not like fine china. It's meant to be used every day. And it's also not like an iPhone that only lasts a few years. This gift is amazing. If you didn't have this gift... You would certainly want this under your tree this Christmas year. And yet, so often, it becomes one of those unused gifts in our lives. It remains wrapped in the box, tucked away, and forgotten somewhere. And there it sits, collecting dust. This gift is the subject of our sermon today. Today, I want to talk about what I believe is one of the most never-unwrapped gifts in our lives. Joy. Joy is the third theme of the Advent season. Hope, peace, joy, love. Joy has been given as a gift to every single believer. Joy is the fruit of the Spirit, and so that means the moment that you trust in Christ, the Spirit is placed in you, and so joy is placed in you. It was so, so costly. And it is so needed. And yet so often, there it is, stored away somewhere inside of us, collecting dust. It reminds me of... Um, Several years ago, my first year in seminary, and I was still under my parents' care. And so my mom bought me this meal plan. And the meal plan provided like several meals every day. And then on the last day of the semester, it would expire. And whatever you didn't use went away. So it was the last day of the semester. And I went, and it was during finals. So I went to buy a snack. And the cafeteria lady said to me, do you want to put this on your snack account? And I was like, what? And she explained to me that I had like a hundred dollars 
to be used throughout the semester on all the different kind of snacks I wanted. But I hadn't used it. And I was like, are you kidding me? I was sitting on this gold mine of snacks this whole time. It was already bought for me. It was mine for the using. But it just sat there. Joy has already been bought for us. Joy is part of God's plan for us. And I don't want to get to the last day of my life and realize that I've been sitting on this gold mine of joy. And yet it remained unused. Never touched. So often it still sits there as an unused gift in our lives. And I know this, not just conceptually, but from personal experience, I can testify to this. This is, this is a journal from my journal from the year 2017, this year. And I found this entry uh, on May 1st of this year. It's a prayer. It says this to God. I ask for healing from anxious, joyless Christianity. You see, I was realizing that although I was experiencing moments of joy, I was experiencing moments of joy, but my life wasn't characterized by a deep joy. Joy was often on the shelf collecting dust. Am I alone in this? Is anyone else with me? Can anyone else relate to that cry of the heart that says to God, God, I need more joy, true joy, deep joy. I've been living like a joyless Christian. Or is that not okay to say in church? Why don't we do this? Raise your hand if you can relate to that. Raise your hand if joy ever collects dust in your life. Now look around. That's powerful. That's us being real with one another. And that's where we need to start. Friends, we, we have a journey to take in this area. I'm not saying it's, it's okay to stay where we are. It's important to realize where we are. And then we have a journey to take in this area. And I can testify that God has been taking me on a journey in this area this year. So that gratefully I can look back and say that with God's help, I'm farther than I was before. There, this has been a major theme in my life in 2017. This is fresh for me. I didn't know I'd be speaking on joy. That's just how the Spirit works. So this morning, my prayer is that we will also journey forward together in this. Not that 30 minutes from now we'll have everything figured out about joy, but that we will, with God's help, be able to see and take decisive steps forward and see a clear pathway to grow in joy. In other words, we can begin to unwrap more joy in our lives. It's possible. We need it. We have God's help. We have each other. Let's do this. Turn to your neighbor and say, let's do this. 
One of the best places I know to look for guidance on joy is the book of Philippians. Joy is mentioned 16 times in these short four chapters. It's a key theme in the book of Philippians. The Philippians were facing opposition on the outside and turmoil on the inside. So we're not talking about superficial joy here. In the midst of that, Paul is like, I want you to have real joy. And in that week too, can, we can learn what real joy looks like. So I want to invite you to turn to a specific section of this book. Philippians 1, verses 18 through 26. Philippians 1, 18 through 26. If you have a Bible, I invite you to turn there. Or in a phone, or if you don't have a Bible, go to the Welcome Center after the service, and we'd love to give you one. Philippians 1, 18 through 26. This passage can be broken into three parts. Number one, what joy isn't. Number two, what joy is. And number three, what joy does. The first part is found in verses 18 through 20. Let's read it. What then? Only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed, and in that I rejoice. Yes, and I will rejoice. For I know that through your prayers and the help of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, this will turn out for my deliverance, as it is my eager expectation and hope, that I will not at all be ashamed, but that with full courage, now as always, Christ will be honored in my body, whether by life or by death. This passage starts off by mentioning the word rejoice twice. Verse 18 has the word rejoice twice. Paul is having joy upon joy. He says, I rejoice and I will rejoice. So what's the context of this? In order to find out, we actually have to look backward and forward. That's what verse 18 does. It's a transitional verse. It straddles two sections like a hinge. It points back to the previous verses and then points forward to the following ones. So first, to find out the context of Paul rejoicing, we look back. The verses leading up to this explain that while Paul was writing these words, he was in prison. Our prison system today is no walk in the park, but during this time period... Prison conditions were often unbelievably miserable. We know that Paul was in chains, probably heavy iron chains. Imagine trying to sleep every night like that, maybe even chained to the wall. And in, in his culture, chains were associated with shame. So it's like being shackled with shame. And on top of that, the cells were often utter darkness 24 hours a day. No light. No ventilation. The stench from sweat and human waste could be unbearable. Basic needs like food, clothing, and blankets were often denied. So Paul wasn't writing this in his recliner with his favorite LaCroix in his hand and a a sunbeam coming down on his face. Rejoice! We don't know his exact situation, but no doubt he was suffering in some way. No doubt he was experiencing deprivation in some way. He was not comfortable. And to add insult to injury, we also find out in these previous verses that other so-called preachers were attacking Paul. They were jealous of Paul and his influence. 
So they use his imprisonment as an opportunity to try to elevate themselves above him and in the process step on him to raise themselves. Like Paul is down here, look at him in prison, and I am up here. Now I get the attention. It appears that I'm trying to make themselves look better. They were kicking dirt on his reputation. So we first look back. On the inside, Paul is in prison. On the outside, others are actively trying to harm his reputation. But this is a transitional verse, so we also look forward in the verses that follow, 19 and 20. And we find out that Paul is waiting to stand on trial. Any day now he will be summoned to stand before the powers that be, and they will decide whether he lives or is executed. Notice the end of verse 20, whether by life or by death. Paul is not 100% sure what the outcome will be. He kind of, he's maybe persuaded in one direction, but he's going back and forth. He's not 100% sure. That's what Paul is facing. So quick review. On the inside, prison. On the outside, others attacking him. And set before him an impending trial with a big yay or nay. Life or death. And here's the point of painting this whole picture. It's in that context. Where Paul says, I rejoice and I will rejoice. That is the context. Paul is not awesome where living the dream. He's got deep troubles on every side. Troubles on the inside, troubles on the outside, troubles right before him. Yet he says, I rejoice and I will rejoice. I have joy and I will have joy. We'll get to why in just a moment, but I think we need to pause here. Because I think this itself is an important lesson for us. This shows us our first point. What joy isn't. Joy isn't based. On our situation. Joy isn't based on our circumstances. And that's good news because our situation and circumstances go up and down and up and down and up and down. And when our superficial joy is tied to that, it goes up and down and up and down and up and down. Now I'm rejoicing, now I'm not rejoicing. Now I'm rejoicing, now I'm not rejoicing. Are you tired of that? And what about those seasons in life when the situation just stays down for however long? If my joy is tied to that, what am I to do? Please don't get me wrong. Paul is not rejoicing simply because his situation is bad. Like, oh, I just love suffering. That's my favorite. No, but he's rejoicing Because his situation is not everything. And please, please, please don't get me wrong. I'm not saying to snap on a fake smile when life is tough and maybe you're suffering in some way. That's fake happiness, not real joy. That's the Mr. Potato Head effect where you just snap on the face. Real joy does not ignore or deny that life is hard. Real joy does not stuff away bad feelings and try to paint over them. To the contrary, al contrario, real joy is actually seen most clearly when we're honest that our situation is tough 
And yet there's still this joy that arises above the situation. A joy that is not chained to the situation. That's real joy. I've been thinking a lot about Pastor Maya lately. Uh, It's coming up on a year since he went home to be with Jesus. And I remember being with him in that hospital room with Pastor Ralph on his last day. And seeing him just just raise his hands and be like, hallelujah, hallelujah, thank you, Jesus, thank you. I learned a lot from him. And he, more than anyone else, taught me what real joy looks like. And I share that so that we can learn too. I share that so that we can know this isn't one of those things that, that sounds better on paper than actually in life. Not one of those abstract things or theoretical things. This is real. Real joy is possible. I may not know what your situation is, but I'm here to tell you some good news. Your joy does not have to be tied to it. You can have joy. You can have joy. You can have joy even when life is most difficult. In 2 Corinthians 6.10, Paul says this, We are sorrowful, yet always rejoicing. I think that's one of the most important verses on joy in the whole Bible. We are sorrowful, yet always rejoicing. Joy is not based on our situation. It's not based on our circumstances. That's what joy isn't. So we turn down to what joy is. And it's found in verses 21 through 24. So let's read that. This is 21 through 24. For me to live is Christ, and to die is gain. If I am to live in the flesh, that means fruitful labor for me. Yet, which I shall choose, I cannot tell. I am hard pressed between the two. My desire is to depart and be with Christ, for that is far better. But to remain in the flesh is more necessary on your account. Paul is in prison. Paul is being ridiculed. Paul is facing an imminent life or death trial, and yet we find him rejoicing. So the question is, the question we all want to know is, why? His answer is summarized in verse 21. It's one of the most powerful and memorable verses in all of Scripture. For to me, to live is Christ, and to die is gain. I think it's even more powerful in the original language. There's no verbs. For to me, living, Christ. Dying, gain. 
Paul was rejoicing because Jesus was the great passion of his life. In other words, Jesus mattered more to him than anything else. So that's why Paul's rejoicing in prison, because in prison doors were open for him to share Christ with the whole guard. And that's why he's rejoicing when others were ridiculing him, because even though they were mistreating Paul, they were still proclaiming Christ. And so unbelievably, he says, that's fine. They can mistreat me all they want, as long as Christ is proclaimed, I will rejoice. That's why he's rejoicing in the face of an impending trial, because he says he's confident that because the Philippians are praying for him, and the Spirit will help him, he will be able to not be ashamed at all as a witness, but be able to clearly and courageously testify to Jesus before the powers that be in the government and possibly a spectator of witnesses. That's what he's looking forward to. It's not the prospect of being released. Isn't that amazing? But the trial as an opportunity or a platform to present Jesus as great. That's what the Greek word honor literally means. To present something as great. To, to present Jesus as great. He's rejoicing because whether he lives or dies is inconsequential. He's confident that he'll have an opportunity to present Jesus is great. Just imagine, for other people, the only rejoicing that we might hear after the trial would be, yes, I got out of here. Yes, I'm free. But for Paul, it would be, yes, I got to testify to Jesus. I got to show the, the beauty and the reality and the necessity of his life and death and victory over the grave and how he changed me and turned my life around. Yes, yes, yes. Oh, what was the verdict? For me to live is Christ and to die is gain. That's why he can rejoice even in the face of death. He's not being morbid or twisted. He's not just like, I can't wait to be done with this. No. It's just that Paul knew that death ultimately meant more of Jesus, the great passion of his life. Paul obviously cherished his relationship with Jesus in this lifetime. I'm sure he could agree with the psalmist, your love, O Lord, is better than life. But as good and as real as that was to him, he knew it was just a whisper of the fullness that would come when he was finally face to face with Jesus. And let me just say, as an aside, as Christians, we often talk about heaven in, in such superficial terms, don't we? Like heaven is this place where we live in these big suburban-like houses and have perfect bods. And, and the streets are made of gold. But for Paul, heaven equals being with Jesus. That's heaven. This Advent season, let's long for that with him. Let's have that healthy homesickness in our hearts. Heaven equals being with Jesus. So that in this lifetime, Paul's relationship with Jesus was heaven on earth to him. And yet he was looking forward to the fullness of that in eternity. That's why Paul rejoices, because he was living for Jesus. 
It might sound cliche, but for Paul it was real. He was living for Jesus. What does that mean? If I were to ask you what's the most important thing in your life right now, your response would be what you're living for. What's the most important thing in your life right now? That's what you're living for. For Paul, it was Jesus. Jesus was the most important thing in his life. In other words, Jesus mattered more to him than anything else. And I believe that's the road to real joy. How? As we unpack this, let me relate it to something that happened to me a few years ago. I had this Dodge Neon. It was so dear to me. It was my college car, and I loved it. And uh, one summer, I, I went to Ecuador. And so my older brother was using my car while I was out of the country. And I got word in Ecuador that one night, he was driving on the interstate, and he was reaching for a CD in, in the passenger seat next to him. And as he did, he veered over into the lane next to him where there was a semi. And he went under the semi. The front of the car got crushed by the wheels of the semi and then ricocheted and thrown across oncoming traffic. And the car was totaled. But my brother walked out without a scratch. When I got word of that, can you guess what my response was? I was rejoicing. I was rejoicing. I wasn't like, you got to be kidding me, my neon? It's like a hundred bucks. I was rejoicing. Why? Because even though I lost my car, I still have what mattered even more to me. My brother. Even though I lost my car, I rejoiced because I had something even better than my car. Joy is all about realizing that we still have something even better. When Jesus matters more to us than anything else, we always have something even better than whatever else we stand to lose. I try not to say this flippantly, because I know it's deep. But when we embrace this, we can say, even if I lose my health, I can rejoice because I still have something even better than my health. Even if I lose my primary source of income, I can rejoice because I still have something better than finances. Even if I lose my status, success, and relationships, I can have that joy, 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 joy down in my heart because I still have something better than anything this world offers. See, that's what we see in Paul. In prison, Paul was rejoicing because he still had something better than his comfort and feeling good. When ridiculed by others, he continued to rejoice because he still had something better than his popularity and image. 
In the face of trial, he continued to rejoice because he still had something better than his safety and security. It was Jesus. A living, vital, daily relationship with Jesus and a future of even more. When Jesus matters more to us than anything else, we always have something even better. So we can always rejoice. How do we walk in this? I don't think it's just telling ourselves, Jesus is better, Jesus is better, Jesus is better. Over and over in our heads, we have to see that He's better. We have to be gripped by this reality in our hearts. So why is Jesus better than anything else? Because He's the only one that can occupy that top position in our lives and never fail us. You see, whenever we place first in our lives, we are looking to that to save us in some way. But only He can do that. Money can't save us by securing our future. Relationships can't save us by giving us an ultimate sense of worth. Comfort can't save us by giving us lasting rest. Only Jesus can ultimately save us by dying and rising again to forgive us our sins and bring us to God who secures our future, who gives us worth and identity as dearly loved children of God, and who gives us that lasting rest, that thing we long for. Only Jesus can do that. That's why he's better than anything else. And if at this point you're thinking that kind of sounds like the Hope Sermon from two weeks ago, I would say, exactly. Because He who is our hope, is our peace, and is our joy, and is our love. It's all in Him, because He alone is our Savior. He alone is better than all the false messiahs that we put in our hearts. It's all found in Him. I was just sitting there meditating on this passage yesterday and just thinking, I could have five billion dollars, but if I didn't have hope, peace, joy, and love, my life would be empty. I could have hardly anything, but if I had hope and peace and joy and love, my life would be full. It's all found in Him. That's why He alone is the reason we can have joy. And let me just say, joy doesn't have to look a certain way. Joy isn't always happy clappy. Sometimes it's simply a quiet defiance deep in our souls against despair. Paul always had a reason to have joy because he was living for Jesus. He could say for me to live as Christ, to die as gain. So the question is, what am I, what are you living for? It's an important question because we easily, as humans, fall into the Jesus plus syndrome. For me to live is Jesus plus. As one theologian put it, too often for us it is for me to live as Christ, plus work, leisure, Accumulating wealth, relationships, etc. And if the truth were known, all too often the plus factor has become our primary passion. For me to live is my work. And on and on. But what if that plus factor fails me? 
Where is my joy? It goes up and down and up and down. But when it's Christ alone, for me to live is Christ, period. When Jesus matters more to us than anything else, we always have a reason to rejoice. Even when life is hard. And even when our joy is quiet and not loud. So just a quick note of application here. How do we let this sink in? I bet you can guess what I'm about to say. Time. Time with Jesus. Time alone with Him. Time spent with Him alongside of others. Time with Jesus. Where we reflect on how good He's been to us. Where we think about all that He's done for us. Where we keep the good news good to our hearts. Where we keep it fresh to us. And we can see over and over. See and be gripped by the fact that he's better. He's better. He's better. Look at how great he is. Let that diamond sparkle in front of your eyes. All the different angles. He's better. He's better than all the false messiahs in our hearts. He's better. When I feel myself wanting to get my identity in this area, he's better. When I feel myself wanting that lasting comfort and security in this area, he's better. He's better. So far we've seen what joy isn't. It isn't based on our circumstances. It isn't based on our situation. We've seen what joy is. It's found when Jesus matters more to us than anything else. So now we turn to the final part in verses 25 through 26. What joy does... 25 and 26. Convinced of this, I know that I will remain and continue with you all for your progress and joy in the faith, so that in me you may have ample cause to glory in Christ Jesus because of my coming to you again. This section tells us what joy does, and we, what we see here is simply this. Joy is spread. Joy is spread. The passage begins in verse 18 with Paul rejoicing, and it ends with Paul wanting to come to the Philippians in verse 25 for their progress and joy in the faith. In the beginning, Paul has joy, and in the end, he wants to give it to others. And verse 26 says, to glory in Christ Jesus, which is very similar to rejoicing in something. In fact, it's so similar that in the older version of the NIV, it translates it like this, your joy in Jesus Christ, my overflow. The ESV translation is more accurate because these two concepts are not exactly the same, but I would say rejoicing is always included in glorying in something. So Paul is saying, I want to come to you for your joy in the faith and so that you overflow with glorying in Jesus, which includes rejoicing. So out of Paul's joy in Jesus... He wants to bring others joy in Jesus. Joy is spread. Turn really quick to the next chapter. Chapter 2, verses 17 through 18. 2, 17 through 18. Even if I am to be poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrificial offering of your faith, I am glad and rejoice with you all. Likewise, you also should be glad and rejoice with me. In the same way that Paul has joy, he wants them to have joy. Joy is spread. 
And I wish we could say more about this, but for the sake of time, I just want to draw out one implication. Our joy is always found in Jesus, but our joy is often helped by the community of believers. Let me say that again. Our joy is always found in Jesus, but our joy is often helped by the community of believers. And that's why we need this, to take this journey together. We need one another. You see, when I'm struggling with joy, being with you can remind me afresh of my reason for joy. I can hear and see how good Jesus is in your life. And when you're struggling with joy, I can somehow point you to Jesus. You can help me, and I can help you. We need each other. And I want to speak here directly, and and we're going to wrap it up, but I just want to speak here directly to a strategy of Satan. When we are down, when we most need to be reminded of our source of joy to keep us afloat, when we are most down, that's when we are most tempted to withdraw from one another and isolate ourselves. But we need each other. We need each other to remind one another of our joy. And when you're struggling... But you still come, and I can see that joy in you, in the midst of it, oh, how it encourages my joy. Listen, when you're struggling, I know that it's a victory just to step outside. And I don't want to minimize that. But I want to encourage all of us, ask God for strength. Push yourself to get into community with other believers. We need each other. What joy is it? It isn't based on our situation or circumstances. What joy does, what joy is, it's found when Jesus matters more to us than anything else. What joy does, joy is spread. So as I invite the band to come forward, let's begin with how, let's end with how we begin. For many of us, joy often looks like this unused gift in our lives. Tucked away inside of us, at times collecting dust. This Advent season, let's begin to unwrap joy, finding that when Jesus matters more than anything else, there's always a reason to rejoice. So as we journey forward together in this, I want us to invite us to ask this foundational question. What am I living for? Have I fallen into the Jesus plus What is my plus factor? What am I living for? This Advent season and moving forward, let it be Jesus. When everything else in this world goes up and down, when everything else in this world we look to to ultimately save us can't, let it be Jesus. He alone is our source of true, true, deep joy. It was bought for us at the cross. It was given to us as a gift, as we said in the beginning. It's possible. We need it. We have God's help. We have one another. Let's do this. Heavenly Father, thank you for the gift of your Son who brings us joy. I pray that that would sink in to our lives and that we would journey in this together. I pray, Father, that you would help the good news to be good to us. That you would help us to see and be gripped by all that Jesus has done for us. I pray, God, Lord, that our joy would not be 
chained to our circumstances, but found there in Jesus, who is our Savior. Guide us in our steps moving forward in this journey. We thank you for your help. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen.